Hello again, friends, and welcome to Madison BookBeat, your listener-sponsored community radio home for Madison authors, topics, book events, and publishers. I'm your host, Stu Levitan, happy to welcome you to part two of my conversation with my friend and former newspaper colleague, Michael Dorgan, about his new book, No Fight, No Blame, A Journalist's Life in the Martial Arts. It is an absorbing read about a fascinating life which both general readers and martial arts aficionados will enjoy. And quite a life it has been in both those fields for Michael Dorgan, taking him from Richland Center, Wisconsin to Beijing, China, as bureau chief for Knight Ritter newspapers and as a formal disciple to the most renowned Chinese internal martial artist of his generation, Hunyan Taiji Grandmaster Feng Ching. And there were some pretty interesting and frequently dangerous journalism stops along the way as well, in places like Islamabad, Singapore, Hong Kong. Thankfully, his only arrest as a journalist was during the strike against Madison newspapers in late 1977 for kicking the door of a VW bug filled with scabs plowing through our picket line. That's how I first knew Michael, as a colleague at the Capital Times and then the strike newspaper Madison Press Connection. With the strike doomed, Michael headed to California. As a journalist, he rose to become assistant business editor and Pacific Rim correspondent for the San Jose Mercury News. As a martial artist, he turned away from the Okinawan karate he practiced at UW Oshkosh and the Korean Taekwondo he studied here in Madison with Master J.B. Chung and pursued various styles of the internal Chinese martial artist Taiji, or for those who don't speak Mandarin, Tai Chi. Among his Tai Chi teachers in San Francisco in the early 80s, Master Wong Jack Mann, whose secret fight in 1964 with the soon-to-be-famous Bruce Lee looms large in martial arts folklore, with lingering uncertainty as to what really happened. Reverting to his journalistic identity, Michael published a major magazine article detailing, for the first time, Wong Jack Mann's account of the fight which was licensed and very freely adapted for the 2016 film Birth of the Dragon. In 1999, Michael moved to China to become the Beijing bureau chief for Knight Ritter Newspapers, parent company of the Mercury News, and at the time the world's second largest newspaper chain. That's when he began studying with Grandmaster Fong, a practice that proved so important that in 2003 he took a leave of absence and remained in Beijing for a year and a half to train intensively with Grandmaster Fong and his disciple, Master Chen Zhang, which in turn caused a documentary about him to be filmed and broadcast on Chinese TV to a viewership of about 800 million. You'll hear more about all this in a few moments. Returning to California in late 2004, Michael returned to the Mercury News as an editor in the business section. Until the business of newspapers got so bad that Michael left and devoted himself full-time to his Hunyan Martial Arts Academy of San Jose, an endeavor helped, no doubt, by Michael's designation in 2007 as an honorary instructor at the Feng Jingcheng Martial Arts Academy of Beijing. Michael returned to journalism just this week, with a powerful opinion piece in the aforementioned Mercury News. Sadly, the headline tells a tragic tale. Cancer drug shortage creates death panels for patients like me. And the subhead. I'm deemed expendable as the national scarcity of life-extending chemotherapy medications has resulted in rationing. 
because Michael has a mysterious metastatic cancer that has caused him to be cut, burned, and poisoned with some progress, but without a cure. So I've edited the tape to start with that part of a conversation, then we'll roll it back for talk of martial arts in the Bay Area in China, then reflections on the newspaper strike, and some closing thoughts. So here's Michael Dorgan, author of No Fight, No Blame, A Journalist's Life in the Martial Arts. How has your training helped you deal with the cancer? I think in several ways. One thing I think it's done is uh, helped me kind of strengthen me overall. I mean, part of the problem uh, with cancer, as people will, I mean, everybody knows, but it's kind of withstanding the treatments. So the kind of stronger you are, and, and this, I think, uh, it, it's reflected in cancer treatment now where they have 10 most like major cancer centers will offer these uh, sometimes called integrative care right where it's like that deal with issues like uh, psychological problems diet exercise you know sleep I mean all these things that are kind of obvious health uh, issues but but what one of the reasons they're so important, I think, is because they help you withstand these very toxic treatments. I mean, we are still in a, I think, a very primitive stage of cancer care, you know, where the the big three, you know, cut, burn, and poison, right? And they all have horrific uh, side effects. I mean, I've been essentially maimed. I mean, I had this uh, surgery, you know, where they cut me from my ear down to here and then across my neck to, took out all my lymph nodes. And then they gave me, you know, 33 rounds of radiation, which damaged nerves and created this condition called winged scapula, where your trapezius muscle atrophies because of nerve damage. And you basically lose the kind of strength and integrity in your arm because your whole kind of shoulder assembly uh, is unstable. So if I extend and raise my right arm, then my scapula juts out. And also it just feels like it's out of joint. Well, anyway, that's like one side effect. Um, and then I had a surgery to for that to kind of replace those nerves, this nerve transplant surgery, and that didn't work. So anyway, the treatments are really brutal. So I think that the martial arts has really helped me, helps, you know, kind of strengthen me to endure those, both mentally, because I think, a, you know, a big part of the problem are, are often people who have cancer, especially metastasized cancer, you know, where the prognosis is not good, throw in the towel, you know, I mean, just feel overwhelmed and defeated. And I think that accelerates their decline, you know, because it's kind of like the, the mind at both conscious and unconscious levels is kind of running the show, right? Even though we don't know exactly what the mind is. But I think when the mind then throws in the towel, 
I think you're going to end up with disarray in the rest of the organism. You know, I bet. so I don't have hard evidence of that, but it's certainly uh, is consistent with I think the mainstream thinking in cancer treatment now is that the you know maintaining health and trying to build health is important in terms of uh, helping outcomes. So I think there, there's that level of it. And this too involves the mind. I mean, I think um, there's the danger when you get diagnosed with a life-threatening illness like this to become preoccupied, if not overwhelmed by the fear and dread of dying, right? <laughs> because that's what's kind of uh, suddenly seems much closer than you than it had been the day before, right? So I think my training has helped me accept that because I, I, you know, I have like a two pronged uh, approach. I'm, just, you know, do everything I can to stay alive, and tr while trying to make peace with the idea of dying, and those seem somewhat inconsistent, but I think they're not because, you know, if you live in fear and dread of dying then whatever time you have left is going to be poisoned by that so i think my training has helped me come you know come to to terms with that and to help just quiet my mind calm my mind i mean when when i was first diagnosed you know my mind was like this is geyser of gloomy thoughts right and i wake up at three in the morning like oh my god i'm gonna die this is horrible and i would do these training they go called gong like internal power training exercises that i found i could just you know feel literally feel like i was flushing those gloomy thoughts and emotions from my body so i think that's i think that's helpful you know there's a Bob Dylan line from a song that's got to be 60 years old about people going into fallout shelters. Instead of learning to live, they are preparing to die. There you go. There you go. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's tricky because on one hand, like I say, I think it's important to come to terms with death and to deal with death and to accept it, you know, is an inevitable part of the cycle. If you're born, you're going to die. You know, it's just inevitable. We don't know exactly when, and we become very skilled at ignoring that. But I don't think it's a bad thing. I mean, overall, like, I think you need to come to terms with it, but I do think it's not something you want to be preoccupied with and you want to you're alive live, while you're alive live you know but there is this balance and so i think that when something like this arises and then suddenly death seems much closer then it's important to deal with the fear and dread that that gener can generate you have a great phrase in the book you will give death its moment but only its moment and not yet that's that's my that's my plan that's my game plan <laughs> do, you, do you ever get bitter about an irony that you've spent 50 60 years perfecting this mind body balance and and here your own body <clears throat> has betrayed you like this um not 
No, not bitterness. Although there is an element of that, that I, uh, in terms of, you know, what is the potential of the mind? So I spoke of the, you know, the benefits that I perceive of my practice helping strengthen me to endure the treatments. But I have not given up hope, say, that my mind could heal me. So, and again, now this is something you know, that's quite tricky, which is what is the relationship of the mind to the body? And it's not well understood, right? Although um, just the placebo effect has shown that the, that the mind can impact the body. So that's, now there's a whole other level of like, how does it do that? And how can we engage, you know, if there is that potential, how can we engage that? How can we direct that? How can we make that happen? Well, I'm not sure, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm working on that, but I have, so my original aim and still I hold, I'm trying to heal myself with what I'm doing. Now, am I healing myself? Or, you know, or for example, or have I slowed the progression of this cancer? Because I was, you know, diagnosed five years ago. And again, there's no, there's no data because my cancer is so rare in terms of what the life expectancy is. But we're head and neck cancers in general. Uh, from my reading, you know, it's uh, like, I think the median is something like five years from um, diagnosis to you know the median death point but of course there's a big always a big tail at both ends right and so has my training maybe slowed the progression of my cancer even though it has definitely not eradicated it maybe i don't know you know i think very possibly it has um but i'm still um you know i haven't given up hope that's what you know i'm out there every day doing it hoping for the best trying to accept what you know the worst so anyway i don't know if that answers your if, if you believe it's helped it has helped are, are, are you are you still able to do forms oh yeah i do you know i have to modify like some movements i can't do just because like i say my right arm yeah. if i extend it or raise it then you know, it just, I get that, you know, that effect. So, so it's, you know, I'm somewhat limited in the, in some of the movements, but, um, but yeah, I, I still do forms every day practice, you know. We're talking with Michael Dorgan, author of No Fight, No Blame, a journalist's life in the martial arts. In this segment, we pick up Michael's life after the failure of the newspaper strike caused him to head west and then to the far east. So you get to California, you settle in the Bay Area, go to work for the San Jose Mercury News, and you start training in Taiji with Master Wong Jack Man. To, I guess two claims to fame. One, he has one of the very first schools that are open to members of the public, especially Western members of the public. And he also played a pivotal role in the rise of the most famous martial artist of them all, Bruce Lee. How big a deal was that 19, 1980 article you wrote giving his account of the fight? Well, it, it, within the realm of martial arts, it was quite uh, significant because uh, the earlier references to that fight 
uh, were exclusively from Bruce Lee and from his wife. And they greatly contradicted Wong's account. So the fight took place like in 1964 and this uh, Bruce Lee had opened this school in, in Oakland. So, and Bruce Lee gave a demonstration in San Francisco. And one of the things that he uh, was showing was his one inch punch and it didn't go well. And the audience started laughing at him and he got offended and and uh, denounced all the Kung Fu teachers in San Francisco as like old toothless tigers or whatever. And they of course took offense and then they got together and, and designated Wong Jackman as a representative. He was this uh, Northern Shaolin. He, I mean, he taught Northern Shaolin primarily but he also taught Tai Chi and Xing Yi which are internal styles. Um, and he had, uh, like Bruce Lee, grown up in Hong Kong, uh, but he had come to uh, San Francisco several years earlier and was one of, or not several years, just maybe a year or so earlier, and had uh, opened, yeah, one of the, well, the first school to accept non-Chinese. So uh, ironically, Bruce Lee and his wife both claimed that this fight that they ended up having was because these old masters in San Francisco Chinatown didn't want Kung Fu taught to foreigners. But Wong Jackman had already been teaching, uh, even though most of his students were Chinese, he had already accepted foreign students. who was, a, you know, the first to do that. Um, so anyway, that account was, I think, uh, well, that part of it was certainly untrue, the motive for the fight, but, you know, according to, uh, I mean, multiple sources, yeah, this, there was this demonstration, then these comments by Bruce Lee, then this, you know, this uh, reaction by the martial arts community, it's kind of like a Hong Kong movie, you know, the whole thing. So then Wong Jackman and a small entourage go to Oakland, for this scheduled conflict and the doors are locked and there are only a handful of witnesses. So Bruce Lee and his wife both say that he defeated Wong Jackman very quickly, you know, beat him into submission like in, in two minutes or whatever. But um, Wong Jackman's account was that the fight went on for like 20 minutes and that uh, he several times had Bruce Lee in, in, in a very vulnerable position, but that, you know, let him go. And then the fight continued and uh, until Bruce Lee just got fatigued. Uh, but so anyway, there were, up until then, Wong's account of the fight had not been uh, told in, in any detail. Uh, so it was the first kind of, uh, telling of his side of the story. Uh, and there was some, you know, circumstance, it was hard to find witnesses, but there was some circumstantial evidence that suggested that there was more truth to Wong's account than Bruce Lee's account of the fight because Bruce Lee up until that point had trained exclusively in Wing Chun. So he was, you know, born in San Francisco, but his family 
moved to Hong Kong when he was very young. And he trained under this famous uh, uh, Wing Chun master called Ip Man, or one of his disciples. Uh, and also was a, a quite notorious street fighter in Hong Kong. So, you know, he had tremendous skills. Um, Wang Jagman was about the same age, about the same size. Um, but in any case, after the fight, uh, Bruce Lee dropped Wing Chun, said he felt it was, it was limited. He started developing Jeet Kune Do, started incorporating these more uh, dramatic and theatrical movements like high kicks and that, because in Wing Chun, they, uh, they, they don't use high kicks but incorporated these more flamboyant movements that um, gave him much more appeal as a movie actor, you know, which was his kind of main ambition. And uh, so he went to LA and, uh, you know, and then developed his uh, television and, and movie career. So the, it was influenced by the fight in the sense that he, you know, he, after the fight, he quit Wing Chun, he shut down his school, he moved to LA and then started developing his own style, which was very cinematic and uh, helped make him a movie star. I love the phrase that Wong Jack Man uses in your interview with him when he talks about the fight as, quote, an exchange of skills. Is that a, <laughs> is that a normal, is that a standard martial arts locution to refer to fights as an exchange of skills? Often that is how it, yes, it very, uh, it, that's very typical. Like in China, um, you know, you'd have two masters and they would like have an exchange of skills or sometimes they call it like just crossing arms, you know, which is kind of a uh, reference. So the, the phrasing, the language about it was very civil and, and polite even if the um, actual exchange of skills was quite brutal. <laughs> it, it turns out that Birth of the Dragon is on Netflix. Right, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and I, I watched a couple of minutes of it the other night and there's a whole lot about, there's a whole lot of it that's got nothing to do with Bruce Lee or Wong Jack Man, some, some white guy who's like, <laughs> or something. Did you have any involvement? What was the relationship of the article you wrote to the movie? Yes. So they bought the rights to the article and I had no involvement whatsoever in the script. Um, and, you know, the whole project was somewhat uh, star-crossed in that um, I think, the, you know, the reason they bought the article is I think they wanted a, a, a kind of fig leaf of historical fact, which is that these two men had fought, you know, and the outcome was disputed. But they also wanted to trade on Bruce Lee's fame, right? And I'm sure they factored that into thinking, well, we'll do this and Bruce Lee and he's, you know, uh, still a uh, one of the most recognized figures in the world. And so there's this huge fan base out there that will come to the film. But at the same time, they wanted to 
tell their own story, which in many ways was like an homage to the Bruce Lee, you know, Enter the Dragon, Return of the Dragon kind of Kung Fu movies. Um, so the outcome was a script that was a, like, you know, 95% fiction. Uh, and, you know, when I read the script, like before it was made, I thought, oh, wow, this is, uh, you know, I think this is going to be a problem because to the extent that you attract these Bruce Lee fans, they're going to want the film, you know, if it's a, a kind of a conventional biopic to basically follow the, at least the larger contours of his life, right? And this um, didn't, I mean, you know, it was a completely uh, made up story, which is completely legitimate, I think. But, um, and I don't think there would have been problems if they hadn't had one of the characters named Bruce Lee, right? But I think, that they both tried to trade on his name and then delivered a movie that didn't correspond to what people thought they knew about Bruce Lee's life at all. And that was, you know, largely uh, fictional. Um, but I think, it, you know, and then the film came out and Bruce Lee's daughter uh, launched this big campaign to jam it and, and it, um, it was criticized for, uh, yeah, using this white character who's kind of a uh, intermediary between the two because he studies with both of them. And they thought, you know, complained that, well, here, you know, here's this movie about Bruce Lee and he's not even the star of his own movie. It's some white guy. So there was um, a lot of sensitivity about that, you know. Um, whereas again, if I think if they had just made the movie without a reference to Bruce Lee and just this kick-ass Kung Fu movie, it probably would have been fine because in fact, most of the you know actors were Asian. So in that sense, it was a, a good project for, you know, uh, Asian actors looking for work. But anyway, the timing was bad. I think the, you know, the motives were kind of, murky in my mind in terms of you know why they would um, make a movie about Bruce Lee and not make it more true to his life which in itself you know it could have been a great story uh, not only because you had these two fascinating characters but you had this whole uh, you know 60s culture and San Francisco and all that everything that was going on then I mean I think you know, a kind of true to life film would have, could have been great. But, um, but then when I saw the film, you know, if you look at it just as a kind of uh, genre film, this is a, you know, a Kung Fu movie, it's really not bad. And, and I think that it reflected, even though the facts of it and the, you know, the storyline was completely made up, I think, that the portrayals were quite accurate, you know, in terms of the core personalities and that of, of Bruce Lee and Wong Jackman. And I thought they were quite good. Did you get any blowback from Bruce Lee fans to the article when it came out in 1980? Oh yeah, I got death threats. I mean, it was like unbelievable, like how, 
passionate his fan base was, you know, and it just pissed off lots of people. And I, I mean, I, looking at back now, I'm glad, you know, this was like pre-internet days. I mean, I would have been, you know, it would have probably been worse, but I got lots and lots of, you know, letters and all this and just condemning me, you know, from, again, from Bruce Lee fans. Cause um, I mean, Bruce Lee, and the thing is the article I thought, you know, didn't other than you know question the veracity of their account to some degree, but I, it it wasn't like I was trying to knock Bruce Lee off a pedestal. In fact, I you know I thought he was an astonishing athlete. Um, you know, people who claim he was the best martial artist ever. Well, there's no evidence of that, right? Because he didn't uh, fight competitively. To my knowledge, he never set foot on mainland China. You know, he was born in San Francisco, grew up in Hong Kong, came back to Washington State, then to Oakland, and then to LA. But um, so, you know, the people who proclaimed him the greatest martial artist ever, it's kind of like, you know, if you had a football team in Guam <laughs> and they said, well, this is, you know, and they've never played uh then in any team in the nfl but somebody said well this is the greatest team ever well maybe but we haven't you know there's no proof of that right so but he was an extraordinary athlete there's no doubt about that and a very accomplished martial artist you know you you mentioned this is a, a pretty good kung fu movie in terms of cultural impact and legitimacy your take on the david Carradine kung fu series um, I loved it, you know, uh, watching it when it first came out and it, cause it was, um, one, you know, the, one of the earliest kind of TV representations of martial arts. So I found it kind of fascinating and was, you know, kind of entranced by the magic of it. I mean, I also later came to realize that, you know, like David Carradine was a very unaccomplished martial artist. So you, um, most of the, uh, if you go back and look at some of the episodes, you'll see that, um, you know, he has stand-ins doing almost all of, I mean, you can't tell it's not him, but it, it you know, he's, it, he did not do the best of the moves in the, in the show, but, you know, I, I liked it. I liked all uh, the, and these little kind of pearls of Asian wisdom. And, you know, I thought it was great. I haven't, again, it's been, you know, decades since I've watched it. So I might, I'm not sure it would hold up, but um, yeah, I liked it. You, I went down a couple of rabbit holes working on prepping for this interview of watching, <laughs> watching Kung Fu this and watch it's like, oh, yeah, it's, oh, it's two o'clock yeah. in the morning. I got I to hang out. <laughs> so, so unlike Bruce Lee, you actually did spend considerable time in China, in mainland China. In 1999, you get the absolute merger of your two lives. You become the Be Beijing bureau chief for Knight Ritter newspapers. Were you more excited about what this meant for your journalism career or what it meant for your martial arts training? The way I saw it was just this wonderful convergence of the two. Because uh, 
I didn't see it as an either or thing. It was just like, in some ways, a dream come true because it was like these two kind of tracks I had been on for decades converged because the opportunity to cover China excited me. I mean, you know, I had been covering Asia. As you mentioned, I was actually Pacific Rim correspondent, not editor, but uh, for the um, for the San Jose Mercury. So I had been covering Asia and had done some reporting out of China and that. But the idea to, of, you know, going to Beijing and being the correspondent there for Knight Ritter was uh, a terrific one from a journalistic perspective because China was maybe the biggest story on the planet. And, you know, its emergence as an economic and political power was, you know, impacting the entire world. So it was a, a terrific news story. And um, I had spent time in China training earlier with Master uh, George Xu from San Francisco. I took a three-month leave of absence and trained uh, with him there. And so I had some experience training in China and knew that the very highest level people were there. You know, uh, so from a martial arts perspective, it was an extraordinary opportunity too. So, uh, yeah, so I saw it as a convergence of these, you know, the kind of the two uh, kind of pillars of, <laughs> of interest in my life. On a purely emotional level, what was it like training at the Temple of Heaven, which goes back to the Ming Dynasty? It's this dimension that it gives to the experience, which is what, like some Americans, I think feel that, like they go to Europe and like suddenly you're like sitting in a cathedral that was, you know, built 700 years ago. And, and it shifts your perspective on time, you know, cause like in the United States, you know, it's a very young culture and almost everything is kind of new and shiny or people, or looking for what's new and shiny. So traveling to old places where there is an older culture. And again, in the United States, it's like the new culture is the European culture. For sure, there was, you know, uh, a pre-existing culture, but most of that, uh, you know, has been utterly destroyed. So it isn't within the experience of most Americans. So most Americans is like, you know, you go to the mall and you go to the subdivision or whatever. And, and like, there's nothing more than 50 years old. Then you go to Europe and it's like, wow, you know, this is, this cathedral is 500 years old, but well, then you go to China and it's like, oh, <laughs> this is a thousand years old and 2000 years old. So there's that impact on the perception of time and that kind of a veil, that kind of thin veil between the present and the past is more transparent there than almost anywhere. So you kind of have this feeling of a, a context. You know, I would do like sometimes standing meditation. I also, also went to Deton Park a lot. Back there are, it, it's, that was the Temple of Earth. And so they have uh, Tantan Temple of Heaven. So these were like, two major historical parks, both built at the beginning of the Ming Dynasty. So it'd be standing like, a, you know, in this grove of 
ancient, ancient trees, you know, and could almost feel the presence of all the people who had been there training, you know, uh, before me. And uh, it's subtle, but it, but it's real, you know, I mean, just the, I mean, it was such an or, a, a natural and organic part of the place. Like when I lived in Oakland and I would practice in Diamond Park and, uh, you know, a lot of people kind of going by, well, you know, like I was doing this unusual kind of odd thing, right? Like practicing Asian martial arts. But there it was like all around me, people were doing this and had been doing it for hundreds of years right and so um there was that feeling that it just was more integrated and uh, into the whole culture and the thing about too about the chinese traditional martial arts is they you know they're very strong links to other aspects of chinese culture of medicine food you know even architecture i mean there is this kind of integrated sensibility and aesthetic. And so uh, it felt, you know, like a much, it was a deeper experience than being, you know, this Westerner out in the West or <laughs> in some Western town, trying, you know, doing this thing. What was the effect of the Cultural Revolution on martial arts in China? Uh, it was profound. I mean, um, many martial arts were, uh, I mean, virtually all martial arts were suppressed at the time and because they were considered like part of the old. So the, you know, the, the cultural revolution was all about turning China on its head. And so martial arts represented what was old and, you know, the thinking was old based on philosophies that were old and on relationships like the master-student relationship. So they decided there was just no place for that in, you know, a modern industrial socialist economy. So they suppressed martial arts quite ruthlessly. Also, there was this nervousness because a lot of rebellion and unrest in China has, you know, over the centuries has come from uh, secretive groups and, and that. And so, and, and also a lot of famous martial artists had aligned with the nationalists, you know, in the civil war in China. So there was this, this suspicion of any kind of group or organization or whatever. So all of that played into it too. So, but all of those came to a head in, in the cultural revolution. So yeah, many teachers were, you know, imprisoned and, uh, and there was, you know, nobody could, you know, practice publicly. Some teachers, including my own, you know, continued the traditions in private in their, in their homes. And then um, Deng Xiaoping eventually declared Tai Chi is good. And then the next day, all these martial artists show up in the parks again and they're off and rolling, you know, but, uh, and also what, what happened at that time when, when Tai Chi then were, or not just Tai Chi, but all Chinese martial arts were somewhat liberated after the cultural revolution, communist party ended up 
acknowledging, well, this is kind of a, you know, important part of Chinese culture. Uh, but they essentially kind of defanged the martial arts by they created these modern styles that were based, were performance based. So they would take movements from traditional martial arts and add dance and gymnastic movements to, to create a performance, which is not the objective of the traditional martial arts. So the traditional martial arts are aimed at defending yourself and dominating an attacker as quickly and efficiently as possible. So a lot of the highest level martial arts are the least flamboyant, but they decided as a cultural kind of presentation, they created uh, these new styles, which came to be known as Wushu, although Wushu traditionally refers to all martial arts, but often in uh, a contemporary context, Wushu will refer to a, these particular styles, which are again, performance-based about creating. And, and again, they attract some tremendous athletes. So you can see like spectacular performances, but uh, the traditional martial artists tend to disdain the modern styles because they feel like they've sacrificed, you know, power and efficiency to performance and uh, flamboyance. Tell me about the muggy night in Islamabad when you had a breakthrough with your she. Oh yeah, that was one of a you know very few dramatic shifts I felt in training because mostly it's incremental and you know you train for a long time and and maybe you go you know a step forward on Monday and fall back on Tuesday and two steps forward on Wednesday but you know but then looking back you can see where you've progressed but like uh, Wong Jackman used to describe it as like, you know, building a platform with, you know, by adding one sheet of paper a day, you know, that kind of thing. But there also can be moments where there are breakthroughs. So it's almost like a, you know, like a kettle of water where, you know, you put, turn on the heat and nothing seems to be happening. And then suddenly it will boil, right? It's, so anyway, I was in uh, Islamabad and this was, a very tense time because um, Pakistan and India were were at the threshold of war. I mean, they were having all these border skirmishes. There was a worry that it could be the first nuclear exchange because they're both nuclear powers. Pakistan is has a much weaker military, so would be more inclined to use nuclear weapons if it were being overwhelmed by India. India had pledged to not use nuclear weapons first and Pakistan had refused to do that. And I was told even, you know, field commanders had uh, power to launch nuclear weapons. So it was a very um, kind of threatening, tense time. So, and it was also very hot. And so I, anyway, I was, you know, there on this reporting trip. And so one night I went, uh, I was in a, staying in a hotel, um, a married hotel that was later blown up by terrorists. But I went down by the pool area one night. It was probably like, I don't know, midnight, one o'clock, you know, it was very late. 
and started doing uh, my Tai Chi form and it just felt very different. It felt just, you know, completely fluid and liquid. And like when I, the, the idea is, I mean, part, one aspect of the martial arts is when, and in, in, in practice, that's part of the intention, which is imagine you're cultivating this energy or chi in what's called your dantian, which is an energy center, like near the navel, kind of at your physiological center. And then when you do a movement, you want that, okay, the mind moves energy, energy moves the body. So the, you know, the idea is you want the energy to go out to that point of contact, whether you're doing a defensive move or offensive move, you want the energy to go out. And immediately then after it's done its job there, relax, return to the Dantian. So there's this constant process of chi going out to the extremities, coming back to the middle Dantian, going out, coming back, going out, coming back. And I could feel, you know, certain movements before, I mean, I could feel that to some degree, but not as cleanly. So I said, you know, suddenly this night was like, it was kind of just almost liquid and, and it felt totally relaxed and every move I could just, you know, feel the energy going out to that point and coming back and so it was it was it just felt very different I wasn't sure why that was you know I thought well maybe it's the extreme heat <laughs> because it was still you know at one o'clock in the morning it was probably 90 degrees and humid and, and so maybe that had relaxed me or maybe you know my mind was just had been so overloaded with just the reporting details and the, you know, all those efforts that it just, my mind kind of suddenly did a reset or something, but it felt very different. Then it, it was gone. I mean, it kind of came and then it, I started thinking about it. Well, what's going on here. And then that crushed it, right. <laughs> you know, because the thinking mind came in, but there was still this residue where like it, something still felt different. It didn't feel as complete and magical as that first, you know, those first moments, but, but it still felt different. And, um, but then I ended, then I returned to Beijing. And so I uh, went and worked out with uh, Master Chen who you mentioned earlier. And uh, we did, a, you know, did a workout and uh, he didn't say anything, but then a couple of days later, I went to work out with uh, Grandmaster Fong and I uh, show up and he gives me a thumbs up and, and said, uh, oh, you know, Chen Chan told me your chi dropped to your middle dot. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, that was interesting. Just that they, without me mentioning anything, had, had detected this difference. And so... And again, it's a, you know, it's a matter of degree. So there's a, you know, part of the practice and training is you want to cultivate the energy in your middle downtown. And part of that is achieved by relaxing. That's crucial. And also by alignment. So, and, and those are related because when your skeletal structure is 
properly aligned with gravity. So we all live in a gravitational field, right? So when your skeletal, skeletal structure is aligned with gravity, then it takes a burden off your muscles. So, you know, if you, if, if you stand up and you bend over, you have to engage a lot of abdominal and back muscles, for example, right? Whereas if you're erect, then those muscles can relax. So basically the intrinsic strength of the skeletal structure aligned with gravity allows this process to happen. So in the theory of internal martial arts, so the, the chi must move throughout the body and it's kind of commanded by the mind, right? I want my energy to go out there, boom, there it is. So, but that energy can only move through relaxed tissue. So it's like a whip as opposed to a club, right? So you take a handle, so you can just see the energy rippling out. Well, that's the often used as a kind of a metaphor in internal martial arts. But for it to move through the body, the body has to be relaxed and the joints have to be properly aligned so that it can just get from your middle down 10 out to the extremities. Uh, so anyway, that was the process. And so this is incremental. And like I say, usually not, you don't notice any difference day to day, but when he said mine had dropped, he just meant, it's because when you get properly aligned and properly relaxed, it's like the energy can flow that, you know, in the theory can just flow like water and kind of pool in the Dantian, right? So your upper body then is left, you know, completely relaxed and your kind of pelvis area is almost like a basin. And so this uh, energy can collect there and then be expressed. Speaking of Grandmaster Fong, when you became his disciple, were there other Westerners who had reached that level as well? At that time, it may be two Westerners, two other ones who had become his disciples. Um, I mean, becoming a disciple isn't a reflection of a specific level, you know, so it doesn't, it's, it's like, it's, uh, it's, acceptance as a student, what's often called an indoor student. So it's, there's this tradition in China of uh, teachers having outdoor students and indoor students. So a lot of them will go to the park because you know people don't have much personal space. Uh, you know, it's quite limited. So they practice in the park. And so a teacher might have dozens and dozens or hundreds of students or people who come to the park and fo maybe follow him going through the routines and and all that learn you know can learn the external movements but the internal students or 2ds or disciples are the ones that are taught the real essence of the system so you've got like the obvious components i mean there are some activities or skills that you can learn just by observing, right? You watch people do it and you imitate it. And then you can uh, refine that on yourself. With the internal martial arts, it's more challenging because there are things going on inside the body that 
you have to be made aware of, you know, to kind of uh, properly train them. So if that isn't explained clearly and properly, then it's very difficult to understand. And, and teachers often, have, you know, will have, again, outdoor and indoor students, it doesn't mean they necessarily want to withhold from the outdoor students, but part of it too is like the time it takes is, you know, people need different instruction at different stages of their development. So it's a, it's a time consuming process too. So, it, you know, a teacher doesn't have time to give that quality of attention to hundreds of people. And so that's the main, you know, significance. I mean, there was uh, traditionally almost all these arts were very closely held and secretive and, and a lot of that was due to they didn't want their potential enemies to know what their techniques were and capabilities were. Um, now it's not that so much. It's like more just a matter of, like I say, the practicality of like how much time do you have and how many people can you, you know, teach in a, in a very detailed and nuanced way because it's, again, it's like different instructions and different um, methods and trainings at different levels of development. We'll get to your role as a teacher in a second, but as, as to Grandmaster Fong, you were still big enough news that they did a documentary about you. What, what is it like to have 800 million people watch a documentary <laughs> about you? Well, uh, yeah, it was, kind of, you know, it was one of these, it was just this, uh, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I, I didn't go into it thinking that. It was like, uh, they were doing a documentary about Master Fong and then they wanted to meet some of his students. And so they came when I was, there he was teaching me and then you know i got talking to their producer and and they found it very interesting that this american would like uh take a you know unpaid leave of absence from a you know uh as a as a foreign correspondent to to train you know in uh, this kind of esoteric chinese art right uh, so they found that interesting. So they said, well, you know, so they ended up deciding to do a documentary on me. So that this crew following uh, my wife and I around for, you know, several weeks. Um, and then it came out and it was, I don't know, a few months later, I guess I ran into the producer at a function and, and I asked him how many people had seen it. Yeah, that's when he told me that... Uh, well, he said, that, you know, we have about 200 million viewers, um, you know, at any one time. And this, we ran this four times. So about 800 million. <laughs> Big news in China. So yeah, you know, the moment it was like, um, yeah. So there was a while there, you know, after that came out, I'd be walking down the street in Beijing. And uh, uh, so my Chinese name was Long Mai Ke, which is like, Dragon Mike, and so you know these guys go, oh, no, Michael, oh, oh. <laughs> you know. <laughs> but you know, it's just this fleeting moment, right? Thank God. I mean, because I, 
frankly, I wouldn't want to be, um, you know, recognized or famous in that sense. It would be just too difficult to just go on, carry on with your life, you know? So, so um, you, you, you I think it was Bill Murray once who said, you know, when anybody who wants to be rich and famous should try just being rich first. <laughs> That'll probably be enough, right? <laughs> so, so, so you turn you turn your back on fame and you, and you come back to California in 2004. <laughs> How long did you stay at the Merck before you realized that newspapering had run its course? Well, first of all, I want to say I didn't turn my back on fame. Oh, no, you know, no, it just I, no, passed I, by. I, yeah. So that was, and and also I should mention, I haven't got, I didn't get rich either. But uh, <laughs> so I came back. Uh, it was two thousand five, and uh, then I worked till, got uh, two thousand fourteen. I think it was. I re I retired. You know, I kind of, I reached the age where I could retire and happily did so because right when I in fact it was, it was like when I left for China the Mercury News had more than 400 reporters and editors when I returned from China it started this process of contraction and layoffs and pay cuts and you know that was going on around the country but but being Silicon Valley you know this was the kind of point of the spear uh, because the technology was more adapted here. I mean, the technologies that ended up skimming off all the revenues from the traditional media. So there was just a sense of every day that kind of the walls closing in and, you know, friends getting laid off and, um, and ambitions shrinking and, you know, news holes shrinking, budgets shrinking, so you know it was a it was a grim period of decline, and uh, so I was you know when I reached the kind of my retirement age, I uh, I, I happily <laughs> retired. You know it was it was, it was interesting because in some ways I I could see over my career, you know it was a kind of a golden. I mean, it included this kind of golden moment in print journalism, you know, like with, you go back to the early seventies and there was this quite dramatic shift, you know, and the revenues of papers increased and the coverage and depth of coverage you know, improved greatly in, in Metro papers across the country. It was a period of you know great prosperity, and 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 that became reflected in the in the opportunities and in and you know and in, in the quality of coverage too to a certain degree. And so anyway, I kind of rode that wave up, and then then rode it down. Yeah. And and is that when you opened your own school? Um, well, it was I, I actually started that before I. I retired, you know, when I came back from China, I started teaching and uh, so, but I continued that, gave it more emphasis than after I retired. What did you learn about yourself as a teacher? You know, it was interesting. And in fact, you know, there were parallels to when I came back, I'd always been a reporter. But when I came back from China, you know, the 
reporting assignments were just, it felt like I was kind of going backward. And so I thought, well, you know, I was offered, I guess, you know, uh, an editing job. So I started editing and teaching and editing were uh, kind of parallel because like when I was a reporter, just like when I was a, um, a student of martial arts, you know, I was kind of focusing on my own training and my own development and, you know, all of that had its, you know, its issues and elements. But then when I came back and started teaching, well, then it's like suddenly I'm focused on other people's development and that helped me see uh, patterns you know in, in how people learn and don't learn and what kinds of issues they confront and so everybody's individual but there are um there are common patterns and and likewise in journalism when I, you know, I, for almost all my career, I was just focused on the stories I was doing, right? And, and those were uh, certainly sufficient to kind of preoccupy all my bandwidth. Uh, but when then I, I became an ad editor, suddenly, I, I mean, I realized I had to look at things from a higher altitude, you know, and a bigger perspective and to, to figure out like how, you know, in, in allocating resources and in and in in assigning stories to people had to look at this a, a kind of a bigger picture and how these stories fit together and what what that story was rather than just, you know, the individual story that I was working on, like when I was a reporter. So so both of those were, you know, I think positive and kind of enriching experiences and developments do you think it, it improved your own forms and practices uh yes you know uh, um yeah I, I i definitely in both i think in both journalism and martial arts we're talking with michael dorgan author of no fight no blame a journalist's life in the martial arts in this segment, we focus on one of the worst events in the history of modern Madison, the 1977 printer strike against Madison Newspapers Incorporated, in which the reporting staffs of the unionized Capital Times and the non-union Wisconsin State Journal both walked out in support, soon to be replaced by scabs. What are your lasting impressions of the strike and that alternative, more aggressive course that it could have followed? Wow. Um, I, I think, you know, my views have changed. I mean, you know, when I think about it now, I mean, I, you know, one of the most prominent or dominant thoughts I have is, you know, how much uh, misery it caused for my colleagues because we, you know, all ended up getting fired. Um, and I think uh, that, you know, there were a couple of, of um, what, of moments when the outcome of it might have been changed. And one of those was uh, after the press connection, which was, the, you know, the strike paper had been developed and, and, and actually became quite successful despite, you know, our limited resources. Uh, there was a proposal to 
turn it into a worker-owned daily, but that was uh, crushed by the uh, by the unions who were eager for the strike to be settled and for the workers to go, you know, go back to work and pay their dues. Right? So, so I look at it, you know, I, I, and, but, but looking back on it now over, you know, with the kind of uh, the pers perspective, looking at all that has occurred since, you know, it was a moment where it was almost, you know, this, the strike was essentially, I think, doomed from the beginning, you know, and even if there had been a different outcome, I, it wouldn't have changed the course of journalism because it was, a, you know, we've gone through a period of profound uh, technological disruption in media. And now, uh, you know, virtually all of print media has imploded. So, you know, um, whatever we would have done then might have changed the near-term outcome. But, you know, I think uh, technology triumphed in, <laughs> in the industry and actually, you know, uh, destroyed the industry as, as we knew it. Um, so in that sense, I'm not sure it, that it mattered much. But it was clear even at the time that even though I was, uh, you know, a union member and, a, and a, a strong union supporter, I still, you know, strongly support unions. But, but I think, uh, you know, even at that time, the unions showed that they hadn't kept up with the technology, you know, so what we attempted was a kind of 1930s style closure of the plant, you know, by creating a picket line and spending, you know, I spent a whole year on that picket line. <laughs> and it was clear early on that the thing was, was doomed, you know, because they could still publish a paper because they could, the technology allowed them to circumvent the picket line. So the picket line was effective in the 1930s in the auto industry, for example, when, you know, you could punch it out on the picket line and, but shut down production. Well, then they forced companies to deal with them, but um, it doesn't work if the company can just replace you and continue doing whatever it does and make continue to make money in fact more money because they're paying people cheaper and they're unencumbered by you know the uh, benefits and you know conditions of the union contract in terms of shutting down production the thing i didn't know at the time and i don't think a lot of people knew until you wrote about it for isthmus or until your your journal was published in isthmus was there actually was a plan not fully developed, but there was a plan to shut down production, to have people flood the building and just sit in and, and shut it down. Because the only way to win a strike against a newspaper is to sh is to stop the newspaper from publishing. And and the reason right. they moved to Fish Hatchery Road is they had their own rail spur so they could get ink and they could get paper and they had a huge backlog of both. They had scabs, they had walking huts, they had... So the right. only way to shut them down was to take it over. 
do you, do you think that could have worked or would we have all gotten arrested <laughs> and, and and how and, and how would they and would they have would they have made a deal with these unions that had actually you know shut the paper down that's a good question and of course we'll never know the answer um but certainly there would have been legal repercussions which is why uh the idea was you know was ultimately rejected by the union leaders because they saw that as just this huge legal risk now that said could i you know at the time i supported the idea you know um in retrospect i have you know i have no idea if it would have worked it was just that it seemed to me that you know at the even early in in the process in contemplating the strike that you know if we did not stop production then they are going to win and you know ultimately that happened but it dragged out for like three years of you know suffering by the, by all the fired workers before you know that came to that conclusion but um uh but you know, there would have been for sure, uh, I mean, there was a legal liability, no question about that. On the other hand, if they we had truly shut down production and we could have forced them to negotiate potentially. Um, but even, again, like even if we had done that and gotten a good contract, like I say, I think the handwriting was on the wall, you know, and you, and you had this, problem too in the unions which was exemplified by the printers because <laughs> the printers called the strike and everybody else in the plant which included several other unions and the non-union editorial employees of the state journal honored the picket line okay and i remember one of the first meetings we had where um the printers were getting something like 200 and I, I don't hold me to these numbers. But they were getting 145 and then and then a week and the newspaper guild was getting 45 a week when we were. Right. And, and they we were, yeah. and they and this and the state journal employees, because they didn't have a union, were getting nothing. So we're, you know, in this and we're and somebody says, well, hey, you know, gee, we're all in this together. We're honoring this. So maybe we should like pool this you know the the uh, uh strike benefits you know more evenly to support people on the printers you know like screw you you know we've been paying dues for all this time and 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 the, what provoked the strike too was you know these new uh, uh presses that they got basically made the printers Obsolete. Now the printers for, you know, decades had been the princes of the newspaper industry, right? Because they provided such a vital service, but suddenly technology had disrupted them and, and their jobs were at stake, but they were like the old, uh, you know, train workers are saying, okay, well, okay. But then we want like lifetime full employment and all this where they would kind of sit around playing cards or whatever you know what i mean is they were intransigent so the company was very aggressively trying to co cut costs and they were uh i think uh unreasonable 
and demanding like lifetime employment and you know to suffer no consequences as a result of this. Um, so I think even if, but even if um, things had gone better and like I say that, you know, we'd won a new contract, those issues would have, you know, would have come up again very quickly because the, you know, the cost savings, I mean, you know, technology, much of technology is, designed and developed to displace humans, displace labor, right? And, and so um, there's a kind, of, a kind of inevitability to that. Now, I think that can be directed and controlled maybe, you know, to some degree, but, but like I say, even if the uh, new contract had been won, and even if, you know, like eventually I think, um, the employees would have been overwhelmed by the same issues. The ability to set a line of type upside down, tremendous speed becomes irrelevant when you have visual display terminals and cold type and the reporter just sits at their computer, sends it to the back room and it's all, and you don't have to set the type. It's all done through the technology. Absolutely, you know, this is a thing that is like, and it's amazing, like if you went back like over, what a relatively short period of time, the technology between now, like, you know, uh, you upload a book to Amazon and somebody can order it and it's like printed on demand and they'll get it in two days. You know, it's just like astonishing the, uh, you know, what the technological capabilities are. But yeah, when, when uh, you know, the, at the cap times, I mean, I remember the newsroom, you know, you could smell there's this big cauldron of molten metal <laughs> and they would make these plates. And it was, it was, you know, like watching these printers work. It was like watching a, you know, a, a Las Vegas card dealer, right? You know, where they could just grab these blocks of type and it's like upside down and backwards and onto these pages, it just, blazing speed of course sometimes you know the pictures would come out upside down you know, <laughs> on a deadline rush or whatever but uh but going from that process but yeah that's the thing it's like once you know that technology evolved well guess what those skill sets are you know obsolete um, if the strike had never happened would you have stayed with the capital times or would wanderlust have taken you to california anyway Probably eventually I would have, you know, gone on. I mean, I, I wouldn't have left. I was, you know, very content. And I love Madison and, you know, like Wisconsin. And uh, so I had, a, you know, very good memory. So it's not like I left, you know, bitter and disillusioned. Although, I mean, the strike, I did, you know, took a bit of a toll on me. But um, uh, I probably eventually would have moved on because I really did have this itch, you know, to kind of see the world and have uh, different experiences. We're talking with Michael Dorgan, author of No Fight, No Blame, A Journalist's Life in the Martial Arts. In this final segment, we hopscotch through some of the places Michael has called home. Final close with, with a couple of word associations. What's the first image that comes to you when I say Beijing? 
Wow. You know, it might be the temple of heaven, you know, because the temple of heaven has these iconic classical Ming structures that really, I think, um, express some of the best aspects of Chinese traditional culture. Um, but so that would be a place, but in terms of memories, it would definitely be my, the time I spent with uh, Master Fong and Master uh, Chen Xiang. I mean, those were like really special moments for me, you know, because I had just such great admiration for them and, and, and came to admire them so much as people, you know, as kind of evolved human beings as opposed to, um, you know, stellar fighters or whatever, but uh, because they really have, I think both, I mean, they both embody, I think the highest principles of the internal martial arts, you know, because there are a lot of people who do martial arts who are never get beyond the kind of bullying mentality or this kind of uh, what preoccupation with violence and, you know, it, it, so, you know, there definitely are those levels, but I consider those kind of the lower levels. And, um, but I think that those teachers I had in, in Beijing represent, you know, the higher levels. Yeah. Yeah. yeah by image, I meant sense and experiences. It was, a, you know, it was like, it, it, it was a kind, I mean, a significant amount of fulfillment. Again, in both, you know, the journalism, but especially, I think, the, in the martial arts, you know, it was that these, because they can be quite elusive. You know, it's like with Tai Chi, for example, you can go to a dozen Tai Chi schools and you'll see you know, a great range of differences and, 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 and especially levels and depth of understanding of it. And uh, so I had kind of seriously pursued this for decades and it was like, I had, I understood many of the components, but they, I hadn't been able to put them together and to link them up in in a way that would greatly elevate my understanding. And uh, that's what those teachers helped me do. Same, same question for Oakland. Oakland. Um, you know, I have a, a great affection for Oakland because I, I lived in Oakland for uh, 20 years and uh, covered Oakland. It's what uh, a very kind of vibrant, vital city, but it's also has some deep structural <laughs> issues and problems. I mean, in its politics and its economics has this, you know, significant part of its population kind of mired in poverty. I mean, that, and the demographics have changed quite significantly in the last 10 years because you had with the tech boom in San Francisco, a lot of people that a lot of that spilled into Oakland. And so the, you know, the community has changed somewhat, uh, but still has 
uh, like a lot of problems, a lot of street crime, you know, a lot of, uh, of people kind of living in, uh, you know, in, in poverty and, and danger, but, uh, it's, it's, it's like, I say, very vibrant culturally. It's, 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 it's very rich. I mean, uh, so I have a, a great affection for Oakland. Madison. Madison. I have a lot of great, you know, I have a very kind of warm spot in my heart for Madison. And, uh, you know, I, I went there my last two years of the university. I grew up just 60 miles from there. And then, you know, working at the Cap Times and, uh, and also just, kind of coming of age there. And it was a, a, you know, a beautiful place to do that. Uh, in fact, uh, I'm trying to think of who, who described it this way. Um, I can't think of who it was, I, I may in a moment, but he described it as a womb with a view, <laughs> which is it, you know, and of course it's changed since I was there, but it was this, smallish college town right with uh, but it also and, and because of the university had this cosmopolitan dimension that would have otherwise you know otherwise it would have been just a sleepy midwest town but it had all of these people coming in from different points of the world with different points of view that really you know enriched it uh without the really nasty, gritty things that come with the, you know, a major urban cosmopolitan environment, right? Uh, so it was, uh, it was a great place to have come of age, and uh, um, yeah, I treasure those memories. Very nice. My money would be on Ron McRae for that. That sounds like the kind of clever thing that he would come up with. <laughs> Ron McRae was one of my dearest friends and a, and a great editor. You know, he was really one of one of the best editors I've ever come into. You know, and it was just kind of in his blood. He was like third generation, and you know, great editor, great headline writer. You know, a real old style newsman, uh, and and a great friend. Um, so I take that as a compliment that Ron would have come. And the prince of the fellow. <laughs> and, and finally, Richland Center. Richland Center, wow. Um, it's kind of mixed, you know, I mean, I, I like, as a boy, looking back on it, I mean, I, I, I feel grateful for the opportunity for the freedoms I had. I mean, you know, I look at kids today, like my friends' children and grandchildren and that, and living in, the, you know, an urban, modern kind of uh, worrisome environment. And they, you know, the kids basically, you know, uh, have everything they do is structured and they have to be shuttled from one program to another and they can't do things alone because everybody's afraid of predators and, you know, and those are real concerns. I understand that. But like when I was a kid, there was an extravagant amount of freedom. I mean, we just ran wild and, uh, 
you know, and it, and it's the driftless area is spectacularly beautiful. You know, that as an ancient landscape and riddled with caves. We used to be like, yeah, go cave crawling all the time. And we had a, you know, canoe when I was a kid and we go down the Pine River to the Wisconsin River and I sometimes all the way to the Mississippi River. So it was a, you know, wonderful experience in that way you know there were darker things too which i you know i mentioned in the book i mean there was a lot of kind of low-grade violence and uh alcoholism you know uh it was a backwater and it remains you know it's interesting because it's, it's like about the same size i think it's always been because it's kind of too far it's midway between madison and lacrosse but it's just kind of a, a little like you look at the communities small towns near madison well they've kind of become part of that that kind of solar system right and uh but the richland center you know has not so the economy has you know i think continued to be quite weak i mean i haven't been there in, in quite a few years and you know most of the most of the people i grew up with have you know left and of course now some are dying, you know, have already died, but, um, but it's, you know, it's kind of mixed. I mean, there was, there was some, some darkness there, you know, and some family stuff that wasn't pleasant. I mentioned in the book, you know, my mother had a very serious drinking problem. And so, you know, that plays out in unpleasant ways, but, um, but, it, but, Overall, I mean, it's not like, I mean, I'm sure that there were traumatizing things in my life, but I don't feel traumatized, you know, uh, and, I, and I think that, uh, yeah, you know, everybody has their scars and, you know, we heal as best we can and, and everybody, every life has its challenges, right? And so I, I I feel actually quite grateful, blessed, you know, I've had a good life and um, I'm fortunate, you know, to, for the experiences I've had. And we're fortunate that Michael has shared those experiences with us. First in his book, No Fight, No Blame, A Journalist's Life in the Martial Arts, and now on the radio. And I'm doubly fortunate, having worked and walked the picket line with him. You can find out more about Michael at TaiChiSanJose.com. That's T-A-I-C-H-I-S-A-N-J-O-S-E.com. And you can find his book at various online purveyors. Andrew Thomas will be your host next week. I'll be back on October 30th with UW professor Stephen Kantrowitz to discuss his new book, Citizens of a Stolen Land, A Ho-Chunk History of 19th Century United States. Until then, on behalf of News and Public Affairs Director Sholly Pittman, the aforementioned Andrew Thomas on the board, and all of us here at Madison Bookbeat, I'm Stu Levitan. Thank you for joining us. Now, as Ben Sidron plays us out with a little bit of Little Sherry, please stay tuned for Alex Walding-White and All Around Jazz. You're listening to WORT, 89.9 FM, Madison. Listener-sponsored, community radio.